morning again. My name is Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here, if we haven't met before. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts, uh, examining the explosive growth of early Christianity, something that this historical phenomenon that has been attested uh, even by secular historians. We've been asking the question for several weeks, you know, what can account for it? Why did this happen? As far as causation is concerned, you know, there's lots of different answers. Um, certainly the people, their courage. I mean, these were, these were folks who were willing to lay down their lives for the sake of even their enemies so that they, their enemies might come to share in the same life that they were experiencing. Um, their courage, we could, we could also attribute it to their love, their mercy. These were people who cared for the poor and the outcast, the abandoned children who were being aborted, in the first century Roman Empire, uh, the way they carried, cared for people during plagues, when plagues ravaged the Mediterranean world over the first three centuries. It was the Christians who remained in the cities and cared for um, those who were sick. But here's an attribute we don't normally think of. What about their shrewdness? What about their savvy? Several years earlier, Jesus sent out 12 of his disciples on a ministry of preaching and healing with these words, He said, you are to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And the dove part we get, don't we, right? Um, Universal symbol of peace and gentleness. You know, be morally uncompromised, be innocent like doves, but but be like a snake. You know, snakes, those slithery animals that, that slither around inconspicuously, blending into their surroundings. You know, snakes... Uh, slippery, cunning animals. One of the translations says, be shrewd as serpents. I mean, let's be honest. That, hardly anybody would mistake American Christianity by those two categories, would they? I mean, American Christianity, what goes for Christianity in American culture today um, is anything but shrewd. <laughs> there, there are plenty of things associated with Christianity in our country that give Jesus a bad name. It's almost like we reversed the, the statement. It's like be as, as innocent as snakes and as shrewd as doves. <laughs> That's what we are. Those are the times we are living in. And that is, guess what? That's not a good strategy. <laughs> um, so I, I like that we here in Acts have an opportunity to look at a facet of Christian discipleship and a characteristic of early Christians that we normally don't give much attention to. Cleverness, savvy, shrewdness. And if I could summarize where we're going in one sentence, it would be this. Because the mission that Jesus has sent us out on is so important, and because we are so loved by Jesus, he gives us like freedom to innovate, freedom to think and strategize and be savvy and shrewd about how we're going to go about you know, fulfilling the mission in the 21st century in America. And because he is the one who is accomplishing the work through us, we need not fear failure because he's the one who will give us the success. All right, that's where we're going. Acts 21, verse 34. Very brief background before I read the passage. Paul has arrived in Jerusalem knowing that he was likely to be arrested and he was going to suffer there. His enemies upon arrival accuse him of being an anti-Semite. Yes, Paul the Jew, who is an, he hates us, they say. He's anti-Jewish. He, he's, he hates our faith. He's rejecting our ancestral customs. 
the, the, the Christians who were in the city of Jerusalem said, you know, Paul, here's a way that you could combat that accusation. We have a couple of guys, Jewish believers, who have made vows to God. And what we suggest is you help them fulfill the terms of those vows. And if you do that, then you can disprove to your, your critics and your enemies that, you know, you're an anti-Semite. Paul agrees to do so. He accompanies these men into the temple, into the temple precincts, and all hell breaks loose. He's accused of bringing the wrong people into the wrong places. There's a riot. Everybody's going crazy. The Roman soldiers in charge of the temple precinct rush in, to the, in there to defuse the situation, apprehending Paul, thinking that Paul's the instigator in the situation, and um, <laughs> ironically end up saving his life. Verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, the Roman commander, the tri- tribune, ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. And when he had come to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, "Uh, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. We'll skip that to verse 17 near the end of his speech. He says that when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw, saw Jesus saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that, I, that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. Upon, uh, up to this word, they listened to them, uh, to him. But when, then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, "Uh, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a citizen? Are you you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Thanks be to God for his word. Amen. As I said, Paul is no coward. He went into Jerusalem knowing that he would be arrested with no assurances that he wouldn't be killed. He, He put his head into the hangman's noose willingly, 
But if I could then change the metaphor a little bit, when the time came to stand in front of the firing squad and the soldiers, you know, everyone stands up and says, uh, ready, aim, fire. What does Paul do? He dodges all the bullets. <laughs> like he goes all Keanu Reeves out of the matrix, totally, you know, dodging every bullet that's flying at him. Uh, and what I want to do is give you three examples from the passage of a very shrewd and savvy behavior that were, you were, you know, meant to witness. And then um, a couple of instances, a couple of ways that we might go and do likewise in our own environment. First, verse 37, he turns to the Roman uh, tribune or commander. And what does he do? He speaks to this man in formal, courteous Greek. And the, the, um, the, the commander says, wait a minute, I thought that you were, I thought you were this like Egyptian rabble rouser who led a rebellion of assassins. I thought you were that guy, which incidentally, if you go and read the writings of first century Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus records the very event that's being alluded to in that passage. But no, I mean, Paul has demonstrated to him that I am a person of particular social class and education by speaking in, in formal, courteous Greek. And in those days, the languages that you spoke and the accents that you used um, had a tremendous influence on how you were regarded by other people. And I, I guess it's not so different in America. If you sound like you're from the, the backwoods of Appalachia, you're probably not given quite the same level of cred as if you, I don't know, might have a aristocratic British accent straight out of Downton Abbey. Um, but that's what Paul is doing. He's, he's bringing out his, his most cultured conversation piece. Um, he is, you know, laying on the table the I'm cultured card. And in doing so, he speaks a way to get the commander's attention. Then he does something that seems insane to us. Outside is a, is a mob that wants to literally tear him apart limb from limb. And what does Paul ask? Let me go speak to them. <laughs> Let me speak to them for a moment. He, he sees this as an evangelistic opportunity. In verse 40, we read that when the commander had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And then there was a great hush. Uh, teachers, those of you who are teachers, uh, don't you wish that you, um, that there was like a diagram here of what, what, what did he do? Like, <laughs> and, and, and there's complete silence where, where, you know, did he make everybody raise their hand? I doubt that, that he did that. It works in kindergarten, but I mean, it's like he, he uses, he uses a gesture to silence the crowd. Like, this man is so, he's so on top of his game that he knows how to demonstrate an orator's gesture to say, I am a person of, of some, you know, public speaking skills. And, and everybody recognizes that. And then he begins to speak to them, not in Greek, not in Hebrew, most likely, but in the language that everybody in Jerusalem spoke, Aramaic. The people who were accusing him of bringing the wrong guys into the temple, they came from other parts of the empire. They didn't speak Aramaic. But here it is. Paul is, is, is talking in perfectly accented Aramaic and goes on in a story to tell about how he came to the city of Jerusalem to train under the great rabbi Gamaliel. And, and there he is you know, speaking perfectly in the language of the people. What's the big deal? In the space of about five minutes, 
What has happened is Paul has gone from helpless victim of the mob and prisoner of the Romans to in complete control of the situation. That's brilliant. It's brilliantly shrewd. How did he do it? He did it by utilizing all the skills that he had learned earlier in life. These were all skill sets that he had developed in earlier days through language acquisition and and public speaking training. Um, And he, he brings it out at the perfect moment, at that moment, at the moment he needs it the most, it, to utilize it for the sake of the gospel. It just reminds me of this truth that, that maybe, maybe, maybe God doesn't waste anything in our lives. Maybe he doesn't waste anything. You know, not when you're part of the grand story. I love how that's a narrative feature of a lot of movies that we see or a lot of books that we read. You, the the um, author will take you in or the director will take you in to the backstory of a character and show you how they acquired their skills in order for that one big moment. So I a mean, classic example would be the Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi, right? Daniel, wax on, wax off. Daniel, paint the fence. I mean... Is that, is that movie too old for most of you? <laughs> I grew up with a karate kid, Ralph Macchio, and, you know, that's part of the, the genius of it is just these um, very mundane activities that he had to learn in order to uh, clean Mr. Miyagi's house and, and paint his fence become the very tools that allow him to defeat Cobra Kai in the, in the big match. And that, you know, that's a regular feature in many, in many narratives. Um, Katniss in Hunger Games. How does she learn her archery skills? It's by hunting the squirrels. That shows up over and over again. Um, and so maybe, maybe God doesn't waste any of the skills that we acquire. Not when we're part of the story. Not when we're in the bigger mission. And I think that this, it actually can be a great connecting point with people who are not yet Christians. Because most folks, they, most folks don't believe that all of their life history is by coincidence. Like when they, uh, when they achieve something that was made possible by a previous event in their lives, almost always, they're not like, oh, that, that was just, that was just good luck. No, they feel the sense that the, that there was a purpose behind it. There was a purpose for going through that. There was a purpose for learning that. Uh, when they were doing it, they, they might have hated it, but there was a purpose. And what we want to say to them is, you are right. You are so right that in reality, a central feature of Christianity is that there is a storyteller, a, a good and gracious father who is writing a story, not only the big story, but writing all the individual narratives of our lives. And there are, there are purposes to all of that. The other thing, very briefly, that I marvel at is how Paul is so quick on his feet I mean, we know how hard that is to, at the moment when really high pressure environment and you're standing in, in front of a, a furious, foaming at the mouth crowd of people, like how hard it would be to have the presence of mind to be like, boom, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I'm one of those folks, I mean, I speak for a living, but I tell you, when I'm put on the spot, I feel like nine times out of 10, I freeze. And yet here's this, this man, Paul, who has, he has a poise that almost all of us would, would dream of having. Where did he get that? I think one of the places he got it is, is simply that he is not concerned about self-preservation. 
Even though he is trying to save his life at that moment, it's not because he actually values his life. It's not because he's afraid to die. It's because he has such compassion on this this crowd that he wants to stand in front of them and share with them the message of Jesus and his grace. And and probably one of the reasons you and I freeze on those big moments is we're we're so concerned about ourselves, not the other guy. Not Paul. He's really a model for us. Okay, the second instance, and very quickly after that, the third instance, it begins in chapter 22. Paul gives a lengthy speech on, um, it's recorded on how he came to faith. We call that conversion. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Conversion is one of those big theological words. Earlier when I preached on this in Acts chapter 9, I said conversion is kind of like when God hits you hits you with a truck on the road. He just knocks you off your feet and, um, and, and you have to pick yourself back up again. And like, I just had a head-on collision with God and I can't be the same person afterwards. That's what happened to Paul with Jesus on the Damascus road. He tells that story. He goes on to tell the crowd how he, he once persecuted the way. That's how they referred to Christianity in the early days. Um, and uh, he was every bit as zealous in his Judaism and in, in his zealous persecution of Christians until Jesus met him and then told him, you are going to go out and be my emissary to the rest of the world. And as soon as Paul uses the G word, what is the G word? Gentiles, <laughs> all those people that the, the Jewish folks hated, um, the, the crowd is just irate. And they, be, they say aloud, away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. The Roman soldiers are witnessing all of this, and they don't speak a word of Aramaic. They have absolutely no idea what Paul has said to the crowd or what the crowd is saying to Paul. All they see is that uh, the crowd is in a fury and they assume it's Paul's fault. So they haul him inside the barracks and intend to interrogate him through uh, torture. They're going to whip him. And as he is being uh, chained to the whipping post, well, there's, there's one important piece of information to tell you before that happens, and that is many scholars believe the very place they took Paul was to be whipped was the, was the place that they had taken Jesus previously. I mean, Paul is living out. No, no servant is greater than his master. Paul is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. We're supposed to see Jesus in this moment. We are supposed to even hear it in the crowd. What does the crowd say about Paul? Away with him. What do the crowd say about Jesus? Away with him. Um, they're going to whip him with probably the exact same uh, leather straps. With They would tie... Um, kind of like bone and shrapnel and the ends of these leather straps so that when they uh, you know, threw it out, it would embed in the back, in the, in the muscle tissue of, of, the, of the person being tortured, and they could rip it out of his back, which is exactly what happened to Jesus. Paul is walking in the, in the footsteps of the cross until until he's not, until he throws a curveball. At that very moment, when, they, when they've stripped him, he pipes up and says, ahem, are you going to flog a man who is a Roman citizen? <laughs> you know, citizenship was a very big deal in a world where there were many, many slaves. I mean, far more slaves than there were citizens. Uh, citizenship was uh, of immense value. 
And the, the um, centurion goes to the tribune who comes back to Paul. And he says, I bought my citizenship. You're a citizen? I bought mine. Which is revealing because back in that day, it's not like there was a DMV that you could go down to to, to buy your citizenship tags and, and wait forever. No, you couldn't buy your citizenship. When he says that I, I purchased mine, he is saying, I bribed somebody for mine. And Paul replies, I'm native-born. I'm from, I'm a citizen of, of Tarsus in Cilicia. I am the real deal, and nobody is allowed to whip a Roman citizen without trial. Again, this is an instance of Paul being very crafty. I mean, he made no mention of his Roman citizenship when he was speaking to the mob, because <laughs> the Saying I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen would have done him no good with them. But here, at the very last minute, when, when it would be to his advantage, like he throws that citizen, citizen trump card on the table, just like he had done previously in the city of Philippi. Um, he, he uses it to his advantage. The final shrewd maneuver that he has, it's in the next chapter. We didn't have time to read it. But he's brought before the Jewish high council. He's, he's on trial before the... It's called the Sanhedrin. And he realizes that in the Sanhedrin, there are a couple of parties represented, a little Republican-Democrat thing going on, but it's Pharisee and Sadducee. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, we might lump them together as, oh, they're the bad guys in the Bible, but actually they were quite different. They were all bad, but they were also quite different. The Sadducees were, they were the ruling elite. They were the aristocracy. They were collaborators with Rome in charge of the temple, uh, associated with the priesthood. They were hated by the people. The Pharisees were, were, were not. They were your salt-of-the-earth kind of guys who love the Bible. They're the kind of guys that we probably would have gotten along with pretty well in the first century. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in demons and angels and a future resurrection. The Sadducees did not. But these two parties, they didn't like each other. They had very different worldviews. And then we read in verse 23, or chapter 23, verse 6, that when Paul perceived both parties were present in the council, what does he do? He doesn't play his citizenship card. He plays his Pharisee card. <laughs> he says, I'm a Pharisee, guys. I'm a Pharisee. Now, I mean, he doesn't talk about all the ways that he now disagrees with his Phariseeism and how he's left it all, um, almost all in the past, but uh, he plays that card. Now, as I've described this to you, um, maybe you're, you're asking the question, you're wondering, is this all manipulative? Is Paul, is he, is he just kind of like this master manipulator, con man sort of individual? No, he's not. At least he's not if, Trying to save an innocent man from being murdered is manipulation. Because he is an innocent man. No, he is, if we were to put it in modern pop culture terms, what, the Mandalorian, is? his job is to save the kid? You know, Paul is the kid against the empire. <laughs> um, and who is the Mandalorian? Who is it? It's actually told us in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, the prophecy of Jesus Christ. This is the Mandalorian. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, Jesus says, do not worry about what, how you, you are to defend yourselves or what to say on that day. For at that time, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you should say. The Holy Spirit is the one who's behind all of it. You know, the Holy Spirit comes to play um, on Paul's behalf. 
All right, what about us? Um, I know I went through that really quickly. I think that there's a lot of cool things in the passage that maybe uh, at a um, face level reading you might not pick up on. But, you know, what about us? How does a passage like this translate into, into our lives? Because, I mean, obviously we aren't facing high level persecution situations where we're jousting with mobs and soldiers and Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, but how... Um, is there a way that we should be more shrewd in taking the gospel to our community? Does Jesus ever talk about shrewdness in any of his teachings? Yeah, I'll give you a second to think about that. Can you remember a place where Jesus teaches about, te- teaches about this? He does. Um, it's in Luke 16. The parable, oh, I see a hand back there. Do you, you want to give the answer? <laughs> Luke 16, it's the variously titled parable, the parable of the unjust steward. You've heard it called that before. Or the parable of the shrewd money manager. It's a very strange story. One of the uh, more confusing parables that Jesus ever told. It's, It's the story of a rich man who comes to the steward whom he's placed in charge of his household and says, in effect, you're fired. You know, here's your termination notice. I'll give you a little bit of time to get your, your affairs in order, and then you're gone, buddy. You're out on the street. Now, the steward is a man who has a bad reputation in town. Um, he, he's considered probably unscrupulous. There are a lot of poor, broken relationships he has with the townsfolk. And so his prospects for finding a new job are kind of bleak. He realizes that, man, nobody's going to hire me. Um, And he even um, reminisces of how, oh, I'll have to beg. I'll be so poor I have to beg or I'll have to work manual labor as as though that's the worst thing in the world. Um, But he's a clever kind of guy. And he comes up with a a very clever plan. There are two types of cleverness in this world. There is the cleverness of the angels and there's the cleverness of the devil. And we're much more familiar with the second than the first. When you hear this story told by Jesus, you kind of wonder which one is in play. Is it, is it the angelic cleverness or the uh, devilish cleverness? This man, I said, he was the steward of the household. He was in charge of managing his master's money. So when debtors would come in to make good on their bills, he was the guy in charge of that. Well, the steward's like, um, let me take a look at your bill. Can you bring it over here for a second? Yeah, it... I see you owe my master $400. Here's what, you're very lucky today. Here's what we're going to do. And he slashes the bill down to, let's make that $200 and and keep it just between us. (laughs) And remember who who, um, was behind all of this. What does he do? He, He erases the enormous debt in order to create friendships, which he didn't have before. Now, you think when the master knows what's happened, he'd be absolutely furious at this um, steward. But instead, Jesus throws the punchline out there. Quote, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. It's almost as if Jesus was... I don't know, um, (laughs) predicting 21st century American Christianity. Like, oh, we'll read our Bible, we will pray, and then we will go out into the world and act as dumb as possible. (laughs) Like, we we will go out 
and, and not have any coherent or cohesive strategy for reaching this place. Uh, I don't know if you have ever been witness to that or been privy to that or if, you, if you've been guilty of that. I know that I have been guilty of that. But, I mean, look, Christians are not very shrewd in the way they, they act towards outsiders. And then, here's the really beautiful part, how Jesus presses us further. Uh, there's a particular kind of shrewdness, he says, I want you to emulate. It is a financial shrewdness. I want you to be Warren Buffett shrewd and crafty in the way that you deal with your money. Um, what was that shrewdness? Can anybody recall what it was? Was it Bitcoin? <laughs> that would have been a good idea. <laughs> Verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it's gone, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Use whatever money you have to make eternal friendships. That's what he means. Your bank account, he says, your bank account needs to be shrewdly invested into, and I know it sounds like trite, but into forever friends. Into friends that will open for you eternal dwellings. Um, Be Warren Buffett shrewd in investing dollars into your neighbors because money doesn't last, but your neighbors do. And when I read that this week, I felt like Jesus hit me with a two-by-four in a good way. (laughs) I felt like he was asking me the question, like, Brad, I love you. You're my child. And by the way, how much money have you spent on your next-door neighbor? I love you. How much money have you invested in the people across the street from you? How much money have you spent on their kids? I know how much money I've spent on my kids. It's been a lot. <laughs> we, we will, we'll spend tons of money on our kids. I mean, what, what way could we possibly ingratiate in ourselves with another person more favorably than to spend our money on their kids? Like, that really gets a person in Meridian Idol. That hits them in the heart, doesn't it? And how much money have, I, have you spent on your colleagues at work? How much money have you been Warren Buffett shrewd in those respects? I want you to do this. I want you to imagine you're living in the southern part of the United States of America. Well, no, I guess. You're living in the South, and the date is April 9th, 1865. And you get the news from Appomattox Courthouse that Lee has surrendered. You pull out your wallet from your back pocket, and you, you pull out a $100 what? A $100, oh, it reads CSA. Oh, Confederate States of America. At that moment, you do get a pretty clear view of, of how valuable money is, right? <laughs> it changes the way that you um, regard money. All of, your sudden, all of a sudden, on, um, on Surrender Day, your money doesn't look quite as valuable. You might want to keep some of it as long as it's good, but it's not going to be good for very long. What you need at that moment is a currency exchange. Now, I doubt that it, on April 9th, 1865, there were any currency exchanges operating, you know, down in Dixie land. But if you could, if you could find some place that would trade out CSA dollars for USA dollars, I bet if you could find that place, you would, you would, you would accept very bad exchange rates. Very bad exchange rates in order to convert that currency. Um, That's Jesus' point. There is a place to exchange 
our currency into a different currency. We can trade our money in for friendships. Friendships that will last forever. Friendships that will open doors to eternal dwellings. And that is a very shrewd strategy according to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, what matters more is the number of friends that you have than the number of dollars you have in your bank. Amen? It's true. It's shrewd. It's also deeply convicting. Because I I can tell you, our family, we've lived off of a budget for a bunch of years we're pretty good about following it. Every January, we go back and we reevaluate re- re- the family budget. I mean, Aaron and I have never sat down with our family budget at the beginning of the year and, and talked together self-consciously about, like, how can we convert these dollars into friendships? We've never done that before. Have you? Have you ever thought of it that way? It's a revolutionary way of just looking out on the world, isn't it? It's just not something that we normally do. Um, and yet it's one of the strategies Jesus uh, encourages us to employ. There's a second uh, idea I had. And this one, I'm almost hesitant to even give it to you because it's not well-formulated thinking. Usually the rule of thumb is when we have a new idea, uh, sit on it for a while and, and work on it to get it into a better you know, packaged um, way. But I'm going to share with you just because it has been rummaging in the back of my mind for a long time. I really think the churches would benefit. All churches around America at this cultural moment would benefit with, with doing this kind of analysis. What do you think is the ratio um, between the number of Bible studies we have in church and the number of study groups we have in church versus the number of strategy sessions we hold in order to minister to that Bible, that Bible into our neighborhoods. What do you think the ratio is? In our branch of the church, which is a very theological, study, 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 think, 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 all of that's great. In our branch of the church, what do you think the ratio is? I I don't know. I would guess it's like 100,000 to one. (laughs) Um, And that is not to say that studying our Bible isn't of critical importance Sunday school is important. Bible study is important. Uh, community groups are important. Getting around a text and, and looking at it, all very, very important. But could it be that there is some kind of great imbalance? In, because we never, we hardly ever sit around and, and drink beer together and talk about how are we going to like savvily communicate the gospel and minister the gospel to Meridian, Idaho. We just don't do that, do we? We don't. Isaac and I have had a couple conversations, uh, or at least one conversation that I can remember. Isaac's like, I don't remember this conversation. <laughs> but just this idea of like getting people together to collaboratively, shrewdly strategize about how we meet the challenges of this cultural moment. And I'm not saying we shouldn't still do a lot of Bible study. I'm saying that we should probably rethink the imbalance I mean, especially now, especially in Meridian, Idaho, when so many people are moving to this town where you can't even like buy a house because there, there's no supply. Everybody wants to move here. The one thing we know about people, sociologically, psychologically, when are people most open to really rethinking how they do their lives? It's when they want to move, 
when they go to a new place. They want to start over. Like it would seem like of all the times, this is the time for the church in Boise and Meridian to be thinking very strategically about these kinds of questions, to be shrewd and ask the Holy Spirit to make us so. Um, and now I know some of you maybe have experiences in other parts of the church where they did a whole lot of strategy and not enough Bible. That's that's not what I'm advocating for. I just don't think that's our problem here. Um, ours is very different. I hope you don't receive that as a scold. It's not at all intended as a scold. I, I personally love it when Jesus confronts me on things. And maybe it's because of the way that I, I view Jesus as my like gracious, loving Savior. When he confronts me and calls me on stuff, it's never in that tsk, 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 kind of, or I'm so mad at you kind of mode. It's just that it's like he's opening doors, windows of new opportunity for me to reevaluate things. I love it when he does that. I hope he does that for you. Um, He's just inviting us to look a little differently about our, our purpose for life and our intentionality for living out that purpose in the 21st century. Maybe there's one other way that I could illustrate this for you. I hope I'm not too long into over time, but um, in the Narnia stories, Chronicles of Narnia, it seems like throughout the books, they'll be sitting down at a great banquet and a great feast when somebody will stand up and they will tell the story of a battle long ago, right? They'll, they'll tell some one great tale about Prince Caspian, or I'm sure that happens in the last battle. I didn't look it up. But just, you know, a great story of victory and chivalry, bravery, and cunning skill that happened in, in the old days of Narnia. Same thing is, in, is enshrined in Tolkien's books. You have all these deep, long chronicles of Middle Earth, many of which are sad, which though you could read, you could spend, oh, you could spend years and years at the, the library at, at um, Minas Tirith and read about the chronicles of Middle Earth. It would be so fun to read all of that. I wonder if like spiritual history is not going to be detailed and chronicled in heaven for us to read. And I find that tremendously encouraging. Um, there are so many pieces of spiritual history that I would love to, to sit in on as a fly on the wall and just discover. Like my mom and my dad. My mom died at 49. Can't talk to her. My dad is, is what, early 70s. The past is foggy for him now. I, I really can't talk to them about like who were the really instrumental people in your life who led you to faith? Or what were those kind of keen moments, those super important pregnant moments that tipped you from, from unbelief and, and to, into belief? I hope those are chronicled in heaven, you know? Um, I wonder if even giving records won't be available. Like if there won't be books in heaven where you could see every dollar that has been spent for the sake of Jesus on earth. I know it's hard to imagine, you know, your $500 given to the Sprague's as they go to Japan or your $1,000 to the Sprague's as they head to Japan. Like it can be hard to think, oh, what, what difference does that make? Probably doesn't make a whole lot of difference, except I'm sure it makes a big difference to you guys. But like, what if, what if there are books that chronicle those things? Well, what if there, what if there will be a Japanese Christian who, 
who reads one of those books and sees, like if you got all eternity, there's a lot of time to go and meet people and give them hugs and thank them for what they did. If they could read about your contributions for the kingdom that were instrumental in them being saved, um, or your neighbors and how you invest in them, so on and so forth. I just, I just think it's fun to imagine. Um, life down here is so repetitive and they can feel so blah, blah. And the Christian life, just the same thing over and over and over again. It's easy to, to lose the unseen dimensions of the story, is it not? It is. But I think they'll be there. In conclusion, I want you to imagine this scenario— you have the cure for cancer. You do. The cure for cancer. Could there be anything more valuable in the world? The cure for cancer. Uh, but you happen to live in a place where people are skeptical. Uh, skeptical of medicine. Skeptical of shots. Skeptical of people who say they have cures because they have been promised things in the past that never proved true. But you have the cure for cancer. And, and they are going to be resistant to receiving it from you. What does that require of you? It requires of you wisdom and savvy and skill and cleverness. There was no more clever man than Jesus. As clever as Paul was, Jesus was more clever still. You think about how most guys use their clever, cleverness. Um, I mean, most of them use it to amass more wealth, right? <laughs> if you're really smart, if you're a brainiac, I mean, build up your own personal fortune. Or some people use their cleverness to amass power, to gain an advantage on other people. Or some people use their cleverness to maybe swindle their next-door neighbor out of their, you know, their fortune. And how does Jesus use his cleverness? He uses it to get on a cross. Like, he duped the principalities and powers of this age into killing him. It was his cleverness. Because in Jesus Christ, if you're not familiar with the Christian gospel, this is the story. Jesus takes all of the poison that is in us, in all of humanity. It gets concentrated in one hideous place that it might be done away with for good. And the way you know that that actually happened is because he rose again on the third day. We're the only religion in the world that even claims to have a God like that, a God who actually came down into our lives and was contaminated and died of the same disease we have, which is sin, in order to do away with sin. Um, and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for you. Um, and I would love if I ever get the opportunity and you want to have a conversation about how to believe in him, um, you know, Email me or call me and let's have a conversation about that. But friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, the most important mission in the world is that as many people as possible might know God's saving love and rescue in Jesus Christ. That is the mission that has been given to you. And to that end, I commission you to be as innocent, to be dove-like in innocence and serpent-wise in innovation that all the world might know our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.